The Conversation Hub, Podcast Extra with Mark Viancourt and Timothy Foss. When I started my brand too, it was like that same feeling of, you know, I want this to be a personal brand, uh, but I also wanted to communicate something bigger than myself. So I chose not to name my company my name. I had in my ceramics industry, you know, where it was Foss Pottery, and then I had Timothy Foss Studios. So as an illustrator, I was thinking, you know, use the name. But I, I was thinking that I kind of want this to outlive me. I want this to be bigger than me. I want it to have a different kind of reach. And I've noticed, you know, if I ever write, uh, like if I'm songwriting or something and I'm writing lyrics, you know, I always want to use somebody else's story but I'm always telling my own, you know? And if I'm writing a ballad, it's always a pronoun, you know, that it's a he or a she. But it's, it's always something about me, you know? But by using that third person, you end up kind of learning something about yourself that you didn't really know how to say if you used the first person. So if I say, this is what I am and this is what I do, I get too caught up in wondering if that's true. But if I say, this is what he does, or this is what she does, I end up sort of writing about myself in a much more creative and imaginative way, because it's sort of like I'm tricking myself and realizing it's somehow not me. <laughs> that's an interesting thing that you're right. I mean, we can, you know, we can learn a lot about ourselves when we, when we start putting words on paper, when, when we start projecting and, and, and I like this, you know, the approach to third person, you know, when you're writing about something else. And you're right. I mean, I'm a musician. I'm not a lyricist. But when I'm writing an instrumental piano piece, I guess to a certain degree, I am writing a lyric, but I'm writing it through the notes on a page and, and the feeling on the piano or the, the progression of the chords that I'm using. So, so I guess as a writer, you probably do that too. So. Yeah, I think um, with any songwriting, you're going back and forth between you know, what's happening, what's kind of happening by accident, you know, in the music, and then what you're intending. And that can happen whether, whether it's just the, the instrumental quality or if it's the words. Um, but what I guess I'm moving into from this conversation is that idea of there's often no beginning place. And that's also really enticing about songwriting and any writing. You can pretend you've started here and you're going to end there. But often it's somewhere in the middle or the early middle that you're actually beginning. This conversation, for instance, is, is probably yet to begin in a certain way. You know, we're, we're, quite, we're kind of working towards the meat of it. You know, what, what's it really going to be about? You know? So I should tell our listeners that... <clears throat> that although I've you know I've started recording here and you and I are talking and and we're we're kind of ebbing and flowing into uh, various topics you are by trade an artist you are by trade uh, a graphic recorder and and if people could watch us talk they would see you with a handful of pens uh, I mean are they pens or crayons or They're like markers felt tip markers they have a, a, a sharp point and a, and a wide point you can use a lot of any, anything works that you like these are actually from Ikea I'm just experimenting with them but I was pretty impressed because they had a gray a mid-tone gray because you know I get to do these little shading 
features that, um, you know, if you just got bright colors, you don't get that kind of level of detail and subtlety. That's my favorite markers. It's great. <laughs> and so I want to explore a little bit. The theme for the conversations we're having for this season is around the broad concept or the broad idea of living a life in session. Yeah, I was really curious what you meant by that. So, and as a musician, you'll appreciate this. When you walk into a recording studio or, you know, you know, the proverbial, you know, tape starts to roll and the red light goes on, you know, you're in session. And, and by definition, you are giving your best in that moment. But the reality is that that translates not just in a recording studio, not just for musicians. It translates to you and me on our daily lives, to, you know, moms and dads and brothers and sisters and, and corporate executives and whatever the case may be. We are all, I hope, you know, living a life in session. So, so today I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that concept and how it applies to the work that you have been called to do. And so I mentioned that you are now in the process of graphically recording our conversation. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of, of doing the work that you're doing. You know, as a musician, as a piano player, you know, you do your scales and you, you know, you, know, you always keep the, the, the technical side of things going because that ultimately you depend on that. I'm a casual or amateur runner. So when you train for a race, you know, you, you follow the plan, you, you do the shorter distances, the longer distance, whatever the case may be. How do you keep the skill set that you need to be doing what you do fresh? How, how do you, how do you continue to stay ahead of the curve when it comes to learning, you know, the art of being a graphic recorder? That's, yeah, I think I do the same thing. I mean, I'm always trying to stay fluid in the work, trying to stay rehearsed, practiced. Uh, the best way to do that is to have a lot of engagements and have them close enough together where um, you're really getting to experience not just the, the drawing side of it, but the listening side. And then not just the drawing and listening, but the real like live problem how to solve the performance aspect of it. Each environment, I'm faced with maybe a whole other kind of community. One day I'll be working in the Somali neighborhood uh, talking about police accountability, and the next day I'm in Egan, a suburb here, talking about um, a dental sales plan. You know, like it's a completely different group of people. One's, one's got all sorts of jargon that I'm unfamiliar with, and another's got a, a, a literal language translation issue. Um, some of them are really, really emotionally charged on a social level. Some of them are really, really judgmental potentially on like just a kind of status level. So if I walk in the door and I'm not wearing like the right kind of suit, maybe it can actually feel like maybe I've already blown it. So I have to pay attention to some of those really subtle details. Um, and so that's a big aspect of the practice is, is really reading the cultural experience and, and vetting that out in the client um, uh, inquiry process. Then, um, yeah, the practice of the, the drawing and the, and the writing, that comes a lot from observing. I look to a lot of other people. I'll never probably stay ahead of the curve um, completely. I think all I can do is stay ahead of my own curve, making sure that my work is always getting better. And I think the key things about this work that you always have to pay attention to is hierarchy of information. 
So anytime you're talking about design principles from any visual or written document, you have to show a hierarchy of information. So if you call out, somebody says, you know, I'm banging my head against the wall because, you know, last week we showed up, everybody was late, uh, they were tired, and why was that? Well, it's because we had that big event the other night and he drank too much. But all I draw is banging the head on the wall, um, and I make that the big picture. Nobody knows what the conversation was about. Um, I have to make sure if I do that drawing, I've also talked about why the heck did I draw somebody banging their head on the wall. Uh, so making sure that I, I stay attuned to really what's the crucial information. I think that's the highest, highest calling in this work. It's easy to want to capture too much, but on the other hand, you can capture too little. Uh, you want to draw everybody, or you want to write everybody's every word, but you always have to kind of pick and choose. Um, so all of that is part of the practice and more belief, uh, as we're onboarding more artists and, and we're beginning that process, we're developing our own language. So we're developing our own crucial principles. We really want to value white space over delineators. So making big, like squares around things we feel like takes up room that we don't need to take up white space to me creates an experience for the viewer that's less intrusive. So they're really kind of subtle design principles that we really want to put at the foundation of our work. Uh, we don't want to overuse color. There's a tendency for this work to become too colorful, and that often is kind of actually hard to engage as a viewer. There's things that, even though they're more dynamic and more um, maybe impressive from a talent point of view, might actually be less immersive so for the viewer, you might find it too overwhelming to look at. So we limit our palettes. We try to pick just two maybe um, colors that might be matched with the brand of the company or just might call out to the emotional quality. If there's something really hot topic, we'll maybe use you know oranges and reds. If there's something that we need more sedating, we'll use blues and greens. Um, and then we work with black for most of our callouts, and we work with this light gray to always kind of show sort of a little bit of a dimensionality, some, some depth. We put some drop shadows behind things. Um, build into that, we have a couple basic kind of characters that we like to work with. So whenever we have a call out to somebody needing um, an image with body language to communicate the idea, We've got our basic vocabulary of how we create a body in that situation. We have a, a more tied up um, generic version. We have a more personal kind of cartoony version and, and one that's a little more um, artistic if we want to do something that's a little fancier like a portrait. Do you find yourself now, this may be a little bit more personal, but <clears throat> is your reflex to always want to record what what's around you so moms and dads will will snap video and pictures of their kids i mean are uh, do you do that or do you are you doodling the story of your children as they're growing up how do you apply some of this stuff at home i mean is your reflex to always have a pen or a marker and a white piece of paper by you at, at a moment's notice i've wondered about that too i'm on a, a way a lot of people in this work talk about like how they just can't stop drawing and, and i'm not quite that guy i I have always drawn. I've always drawn in a way that seems to want to simplify the world. Uh, I've been more interested in drawing, for instance, than I've been interested in painting. Painting tends to focus a lot on all the subtle innuendos of light and, and the change of um, how 
textures and materials could feel just by looking at them. But I have actually ended up focusing a lot more on how few lines do I need to use to convey an idea. So in a way, it's been a constant process of subtracting down to the essence of things. And um, strangely, I've found that's a really, that's a real arduous process. Um, so I look to some of the great cartoonists, you know, for that um, inspiration. Uh, I loved Calvin and Hobbes. I, you know, I think that was a really incredible comic strip. I think Charles Schultz, you know, he's a great inspiration and he's local. That's kind of fun. So I think I'm not dying to draw all the time, but the more I draw, the more I'm dying to draw. Uh, so it is a practice for me. So I do have to stay in shape. Uh, what's awesome is the reward is that I want to stay in shape, you know. But if I if I still stay in practice, then I do want to pick up a marker. And what's amazing is that it's because I have these children around that I'm constantly getting to draw at home. You know, uh, I get to sit down and, and play. And, and I put out like a banner of paper across the wall. I'll put 12 feet of paper up on the wall, four feet high, and, and we'll just back everything away and, and just start drawing. And we'll spend, you know, hours on this thing with markers and, and it's just a total mess and our hands and our clothes can be a total mess. But at the same time, like at any given moment, if my kid wants to draw, I'm like, wait, it's just going to get way too messy. I don't want to touch that. You know, so like I have my... <laughs> My weird, like, um, it's like if we're really going to go for it, let's really go for it. But it's hard for me to pick up a marker at any given moment with my kids. Like, I'd rather just, you know, sit down and read a book. Or I don't, So I don't know if that's answered the question. Let me, let me try again. How about, I do like taking pictures with my camera because it's so much easier, you know. <laughs> I, love, I love the instantaneous quality of, of picture taking and, and I love video for just how quickly you can capture a moment and I, and I like how it's an exercise of getting good angles and capturing the light just right and um, but that's all feeding into my design understanding and my visual love of, of how things look and feel and uh, I love how Instagram you can put up just one single image from from the weekend and it somehow captures the whole weekend you know and, but I, again it's a light touch I, I'm not I'm not going crazy all the time trying to capture things. I'm trying to find just the right thing to capture. And in that light, do you find yourself, because you're waiting for that right thing or you're trying to identify what is the right thing, that sometimes you've missed it? Well, yeah. I mean, we're always missing things. I mean, in fact, that's part of why I've dedicated my life to trying to notice things. Um, is because I feel there is a kind of tragedy uh, if it's not sort of an um, epidemic of, of ignorance. You know, we're, we're really ig ignoring most of the magic of the world most of the time. So I'm trying to bring back a practice that helps me notice more magic more of the time <laughs> and, and believe in more possibilities and uh, m more of the time I'm, I'm stuck even in this work, you know, in a lot of administrative moments. And how is it that I can still be aware of the fact that it's raining outside and that that's not just a pain in the ass. It's like an amazing thing that rain is happening. 
Um, how can I notice that if I'm in a conversation with somebody that there's a real human being in this room and that they have this whole other life experience? And, um, you know, what is that really like to be around these living people, these things that have a completely different reality all the time? I love filmmakers that move from one character to the other seamlessly so that you almost don't even know how to orient towards the protagonist. Um, you get so lost in the transition from one character to another that you're completely immersed in a whole new life. And you don't even care that you've just left another one because that really is kind of what it must be like if you could really be omniscient, you know? Like everybody's sort of fascinating. And Malcolm Gladwell talks a lot about how everyone has a story, you know? It's just whether you care enough to look for it and, and listen for it.